Are you now, if given a few minutes to think about it, operating at your personal optimal level in terms of your personal well-being and relationships, your professional circles in which you operate? It's difficult to answer that question that, yes, I am, because at times we are, but at times they're also fleeting. If you are operating in less than your ideal, optimal you, you're no doubt aware of it. And I hope today to use this Palm Sunday message as a way of maybe helping you and I both see what may be missing. How then can we introduce this and practice this in our life? If we could enjoy that transaction, that will have been worth the trip here today or the viewing online. Is there anyone here that has had the experience of interpreting dreams before? Just raise your hand. Okay, couple, good. Three, good. Uh, I had a dream yesterday. Love for someone to interpret it for me. It is this dream. I was watching the masters. And I looked out the window and there was a severe snowstorm. <laughs> the third round of the masters, people were putting vests, jackets, and coats on in between shots. The wind and the gale force winds were blowing. And then I woke up. What meaneth this? I don't know. But we do live in a very, very interesting place. Several years ago, I had the privilege of going to the Masters on the third round, and it was bitter cold here in the mountains. So I layered up and got down to Augusta, only to find it was like 68 degrees, and I sweat the whole afternoon. But do, we do live in strange times. I want to read to you Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through 11. It is what probably is being read all over this land and all over the world for that matter in Christendom and that it's Palm Sunday. But I want to take this verse, these verses and I want to show them to you in a way that I don't know that anyone in the world at this particular moment would actually see. I don't know if that's good and I don't know if it's bad. Let's find out. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this is done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah 9.9. 9. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and, and set, them on, set them on them. And a very great multitude, listen to this, a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes 
the multitudes, a lot of people, who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. All right then. What is going on here? Now, it is fairly typical, would you not agree? At least in this church I know it is, uh, that we will make efforts in a passage of any kind, really, to, uh, I don't know, dig in, dig down, mine deep, try to get out of the passage what is most important, what is the applicable truth that's highlighted here, what is the, the one statement, the, the author's original intent. We seek to find it, we seek to look at it, we seek to receive it and heed it. We don't want to just hear the word, we want to heed it. And that's not ex- exactly what I want to do today at all. In fact, I want to keep from going deep into this passage. In fact, I want to stay right on the surface. In fact, not only that, I want to back up from it, get an even wider perspective. Because I think there's something here that in this particular time and place, in this cultural moment, and in this particular time of your life and mine, we desperately not need not only to hear, but to put into practice. You see, this is a transitional shift going on in Jesus' life and ministry. This is a very pivotal moment. What does he need to do and why does he need to do it? We know that he has to be on a donkey because it was prophesied. So he gets that taken care of. Now what he needs to do, he needs to do. There are specifics here, but don't miss the generality. Let's get a wider lens. What did Jesus need here? He was transitioning from a macro perspective to being highly popular, to rubbing shoulders with not a multitude, whatever multiple multitudes are, that was his arena. That was his playground after three years of public ministry. He was, uh, even though they say who is this man, he was known. He was one of the most talked about men in all of Jerusalem. He was a threat to the Pharisees, to the religious system of the day. People knew who this Nazarene was. He was a threat. They, we know that the Romans knew he was a threat because they sent in extra guards from Caesarea by the sea, as did Pilate, to squash any possible insurrection. They knew that this man was popular, he was known, he was moving in very, very, very big circles. And the multitudes, the multitude and the multitudes, plural, that came his way that day are significant because he is traveling in a very, very wide, very, very well-known circle here. Now, he's often around people. Don't get me wrong. He's either traveling with a bunch of people, maybe 70. He's at dinner parties. He's at weddings. He's at inquisitions. He's at triumphal entries. Jesus is accustomed to being around excitement, popularity, people, some with good intentions, some not so good. It begs the question, I was curious of this, is Jesus an introvert? 
Is he an extrovert? Is he an ambivert? Is he an omnivert? He's some kind of vert. How many, if you were to say here today, how many of you by show of hands think that you're primarily an introvert? <laughs> I was hoping there would be more. Actually, I was expecting that many introverts with, with this big mouth that's up here every Sunday. All right. What is an introvert? Well, you know, the category is, I don't know, let's be loose with this, shall we? Let's not over-label ourselves. But you IT people, you admin people, you engineers um, tend to be introverted. Accountants, I know we got some accountants here. We have some people that work for accountants. We have some engineers here. We have some retired engineers. You tend to, I don't know, Try away from the big multitudes, right? Let's just say it that way. Then you have the extrovert. How many extroverts do we have here today? Yeah. The salespeople, the obnoxious vision casters, the leaders, the, the guy who won't put his hand down when everyone else does. The, you know, the, the extroverts. The, uh, they got something to say and want to be heard. The extrovert, though, will be among the multitudes or the dinner party or the conference call or whatever else, and then... Somewhere at the end of the day, he's going to be tired. I got to, I got to, that just wore me out. Then you got the ambivert. Now, a lot of people think an ambivert and an omnivert are the same. That means that you could go either way, it just depends on the situation, sort of. But let's break it down just a little bit further. An ambivert is one who will be in a meeting and will cast a vision, they'll think big, they'll be, they'll be loud, they'll voice their, their, their passion, their enthusiasm, they're happy to be there. But an ambivert will pull back from that and realize that there are people in the room, people on your staff, people on your team that need to respond in their way to that, and the ambivert will slow it down, back on down, quiet down, and let them speak in the way that they speak because the ambivert realizes they have something to say, and that's more important than the way that they say it. An omnivert will really, more situationally, will do what's necessary to be the extroverted person under the circumstances, and then that'll just ruin them to the point where they're gonna go be an introvert for four or five days. It's almost this uh, bipolar kind of vertism, I just coined that phrase, of which nobody will quote me on. It is, it is, uh, it is this idea that I'm gonna sway back and forth between these personality types. So what is Jesus? I don't know but I do know that he could handle most anything. So that's macro, let's go macro, macro. What do the following people have in common? Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah. All of these people were usually around many people but also knew how to handle when not to be. They knew how to be alone. And there was this relationship between the multitudes and the multitude of multitudes and being alone that made them special. It is a principle that in our life, I'm, I'm afraid, we can lose. We cannot even practice. I'm getting to you in a moment, and I'm getting to me. The point is, we all, Jesus included, need time alone. We all time alone. To do what? The same thing Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah did, and the same thing Jesus did. To hear. To rest. To recharge. To prepare. 
to converse, to think, to worship, to create, to process, to solve, to gain a resolve, to break down, to be still. Psalm 46 to 10, he says, Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. John 6 and 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain, himself alone. When he fed the 5,000 and the bread and the fish were multiplied and he had 12 baskets left over, the people basically saw this as an opportunity to get wholesale food, not retail Ingalls food, and to do it whenever they wanted to without having to travel to cashers. So what they, what they said is, wow, who is this guy? Look what he did, and look at how we're fed. I vote for him. That's my king. He never came to be a king in that manner, nor to have a kingdom in that manner. So knowing among the multitudes what they were thinking, some say between 12 and 15,000 people, between those people he knew he needed to leave, and leave quickly. And he didn't need to go to a mountaintop. Notice this. He departed again. What does that mean? It's not the first time he departed. It's not the first time he left the multitude. It's not the first time he left a crowd. It's not the first time he left a party. It's not the first time he left a group of people. It's not the first time he left a mindset. He left. He departed again. Then it says this. He departed again into a mountain, not on a mountain. For those of us, for those of you who have been with my wife and I in Israel, most of the mountains, not Mount Hermon, but most of the mountains, the big hills in Israel, if you looked around them, if a guy was standing on top of the mountain, you'd probably see a silhouette. Really. They're not that big. I mean, they're like Kulawi Mountains, not Highlands Mountains, right? You'd probably see him. So he didn't go on top of a mountain. He didn't go off again, depart to go on top of a mountain so he could look down. He went into the mountain. He did the Elijah thing. He went into a cave. He, you're not finding him in there. He's alone in the cave, not on the mountain, not a silhouette. He's gone. Make me king, I'm gone. And he disappears. He went into the mountain himself alone. Let's put, it, let's put it into our language and our time and our life, shall we? This principle. Two we married couples in the room. We have to afford one another, mutually afford one another, the opportunity to go off by ourselves and be alone. Not for alone's sake. I think it should be much more strategic and intentional than that. But to be alone with God. That the two become one. They aren't fully one yet. And we each as individuals need to bring back to the relationship what it is we need to make the relationship more one in process. Angie and I, is, uh, well, we now have a 40-year-old. That's pretty freaky. We're still praying through that, as of two days ago. 
And, and, and Ashley does something, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Her birthday present sometimes is to take a couple days and go off by herself. I thought, wow, that's, that's great. It's not good for the rest of us. Well, it is if you don't have to get her a birthday present. She's never around. The point is, she realizes that to be the mom she needs to be, to be the wife she needs to be, she needs to go into the mountain and be alone. Now, the way we typically handle this, you've heard me quote this before, Barna says that 38% of pastors have considered leaving the ministry in the last year. Why? The way we treat things, the way we treat problems, is to treat symptoms. So if you got a burnout pastor, you have a burnout minister, you have a burnout anybody in the church, what we do is we treat the symptom. We know what got that person in that situation. We know it. So this, the, the, the problem could be solved by going to a retreat, like a week-long, 10-day thing, and then go on out there and go do what they tell you to do or just be, just look at the trees and come on back. See, we treated the symptom. What's the problem? What's the underlying problem? We don't live with a lifestyle in which we have our time alone often enough. We don't practice the Sabbath enough. We don't rest enough as a lifestyle, so we end up treating a symptom. And what happens when you treat a symptom? If you don't do anything with the underlying cause, it comes back. So we've made a retreat, the anecdote. This is, this is what we're supposed to do. We're gonna solve this issue with a retreat. The ladies, you just went on a retreat, and I understand by speaking with the leadership there that it was a great retreat. Yes, good. But what keeps us from bouncing back the other way? How is it that we have an aloneness, not a loneliness, an aloneness with God when necessary to go into a mountain that may be more than a morning devotion? How do we have a partness? There's a principle in the scripture about married couples, and it's that they be apart. There's a principle there. They have to be apart in some way, shape, or form, so as when they're together, they're better together. Are you being afforded this opportunity to go into the mountain? If you looked at the United States of America as a culture right now, pre, mid, and post-pandemic, you thought I was going to say tribulation, felt like it, what do we come up with? Everyone got out of the habit of doing what they got out of the habit of doing. They didn't go to a skyscraper and sit at a cubicle. They sat in their dining room. And in so doing, they saw their child who wasn't in school. They saw their family. They saw their home. And when it was time to go back to work, and for many, when it's time to come back to church, no thanks. I just realized I'm fried. I'm burnt out. And it was the, the pause in the middle of all of the hurriedness that took this country by surprise, and they go, oh, I had no idea. I've been running at such a high 
fever pitch for so long. I've not been into a mountain for so long. I really don't know how to process things, and I just now got a chance to think. And this has changed the behavior of an entire nation in many respects. Can't hire anybody. We have the great resignation. People began to prioritize things they never had time to think about before. They began to think creatively. I saw this spot on television about this woman who's the, uh, I think she's the vice president or the president of LinkedIn. Many of you in LinkedIn, I get things from you all the time. Her take on the whole thing was America's fried, burnt out. This has forced us into a situation where we have to think about how we're gonna go about doing our life differently than we've ever done it before. And what is that? Well, one woman became an executive assistant to three executives, and she never leaves her house during the day. She actually works for three executives. She used to work for one. I don't think she liked them much. Now she has three. I think she makes more money and spends more time at home. And a little cherry on top, she doesn't have to worry about the inner city commute. Time alone. We can ill afford to be selfish or insecure. We have to afford one another an opportunity to be alone and to be alone with God for the betterment of our everything. Solitude is a necessity. Jesus models solitude as a necessity. All right, now let's take it a step further. Not only does he model the solitude, but he lives it. Your solitude and mine, your getaway, your time with God, your separation from everybody is important. Ours can be enjoyable, ours can be restful, ours can be a lot of things, his were not. His solitude was on our behalf and because he got alone, what he experienced when he was alone was frankly horrible. His ministry began with solitude, almost a monastic feel to it, and he was grill to grill with Satan, amount of temptation. His solitude for 40 days was a necessity on our behalf to, to not fall into temptation on our behalf, but his solitude afforded him something. What was it? He went from uh, a normal upbringing in Nazareth, whatever that is, to this parenthetical, this parenthetical solitude now he's off with his public ministry. Now he's in public. The solitude prepared him for the public ministry. And he begins to preach on the Beatitudes, the very things he experienced in solitude. Hunger, poverty of spirit, persecution, hunger and thirst for righteousness. All of the things he begins to preach on come out of his solitude. His solitude was not enjoyable, ours should be, because his wasn't. And he comes into his public ministry and he has a depth he has something of the Spirit to give that came out of that solitude, and it, and it changed the world. Now we look at him on Palm Sunday, and here's the transition. This is the pivot. He's the most popular guy known anywhere in Palestine. Throughout Palestine, he's known. And when he makes that triumphal entry, that's the precipice of awareness of people. And now he's about to nosedive into the, the greatest depths and darkness of aloneness and loneliness you've ever seen. 
He can't get people to pray with him in Gethsemane. And there's never been anyone on the face of this earth, nor will there ever be, who is more lonely and forsaken than him on the cross. See, the triumphal entry is a transition between two realities. One, heightened awareness of all people and the hurriedness and busyness and the loudness and volume of life in Gethsemane and the cross, desolation. He's back to the desert. But for you and I, because he didn't experience those things, we don't have to. The irony is we don't take advantage of it. About five years ago, my wife knew, and I think told me at the time, who would be in leadership at this church to, to work alongside me and help me and help the church. And we sat on that for like, a long time. So one day, I'm in a meeting with uh, two of our elders. Uh, Kyle, you were there, Thomas. And I said, listen, I know who the next person is to take this position. I mean, I've known for a long time. My wife has known. We haven't told a soul. But I'm not... I, I'm really, I'm sure of who the person is. I just don't know if they're ready to receive it. I don't, I don't know if they're ready to pray about it even. I, I don't know if they're ready to really take it and go, yeah, I will seriously consider that. And I said, I don't even know. And, and one of them says, well, why don't you just tell them? I said, all right, it's you. <laughs> so, remember that? That was a great meeting. So Thomas got three or four people together and shared it with him and asked him to pray about it. People that knew him, I mean really knew him. And he put it to prayer, and here he was at a transition in his career, in his life for that matter. He had already demonstrated an allegiance and a loyalty to this church and leadership for decades, and that wasn't the issue. The issue was, was he going to make that transition? And obviously he and thank God he did. He made that decision. He's done a wonderful job since. But I said, it's not the fact that you're going to make a transition that's important. What's important is how you're going to make it. And I said, the first thing you need to do before you end one season of your life and start another is to create a mountaintop experience, an in-the-mountain experience between the two. You take your vacation before you ever start. You rest before you ever start. You never go from one to the other. It's like a rebound relationship or the uh, second marriage too fast after losing a loved one or taking the first job that comes along after you, you, you end with one season of, of uh, vocation. It's like create yourself this intrusion of solitude and rest and reflection and innovation. That's where you get your creativity. That's where you get your, your, your insight. That's where you transition and, and these transitions exist in our life all the time, and they have to be really stewarded well. So he did. And we're the better for it. We just moved from one thing to the next, one situation to the next. I, I, I had lunch with somebody who's in this room right now. He, he just retired. I'm like, man, what's that like? Whoa. He's transitioning into retirement. This is a great thing. These transitions come along in our life. How do, we, uh, how do we get over the loss of a loved one? How do we get over the, the death of a business? How do we get over the loss of a marriage? How do we get over this, that, and the other thing? And, and, and you gotta go into the mountain. 
You gotta go into the mountain. The reason we take so much baggage from one area of our life to the next is we never separate them. We just schlep our emotional baggage and trauma and hurt and pain and bitterness from one area of our life to the next. This big weight we carry around. Well, every once in a while you gotta create that into the mountain experience. I can't imagine a single mother raising children in this world today and never having an opportunity for any kind of solitude. That to me is just like the biggest, most bizarre train wreck about to happen you could ever fathom in your life. His or her most cherished ministry are those children and those children are suffering for a lack of solitude. What do we ask of one another, you see? This is where the church comes in. This is where the church steps in and says, girlfriend, you need to take some time off. I can't, yes, you can. Jesus modeled it. And it's just not idle time either. It's fruitful time. What are you schlepping from one area of your life to another? Even the disciples were afforded a pause. See, Jesus went into this desolation series, and then he went on to, even after his death, he was all alone. And then for the resurrection, he even got a transition in. He started walking the day of the resurrection with these guys. They didn't even recognize him. (laughs) Makes me wonder, was he still getting a break from all of the attention? It's interesting. Even the disciples had those days in between his, his death and his resurrection to, to recon some things, to process some things, to be scared together. I don't know what Thomas was doing. Yeah, I do. He went into a mountain trying to figure this all out. This was on, you know, there's no Google for this. How do you handle a uh, death of a best friend who's resurrected in three days? What do you do in the meantime? Who knows? But I know that aloneness comes in. Take a break, make a break before you have no choice and you can't do it. This principle is crucial to being the best you you can be in the present that you're living. Question, are you at your best right now? Go on a retreat, but make sure the retreat has built within it time just for you. Ample time just for you. Do you have a place you can go where no one else goes, where you meet with God? If not, why not? Don't you think he would look forward to you going to that place? Don't you think he's getting tired of being interrupted? Starting a conversation and being interrupted by something else far more important? He's jealous for you. The father was jealous for time with the son. The temptation is, oh, they're gonna make me king. Wow, how exciting. No, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go spend some time with the father. No, his... His time away wasn't fluffy, not like ours.
If you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, it sounds so cliche hearing it. I want to give you, I want to give you a picture, a mental picture of what the quintessential highest level of loneliness is. A lot of people live in loneliness. First of all, if you, if you really don't have a relationship with Christ, if you don't have God's fellowship and God's friendship in your life, you're living, whether you, realize, you probably don't realize it, you're living in a level of loneliness that others who do have that special relationship are experiencing. So you're, you're already behind. I know this because I was, I, I was behind for half my life. You don't have that exchange. You don't have that conversation. You don't have that assurance. You don't have that comfort. You don't have a lot of things working around you, orchestrated by God around you to help you make your way through life. So you're already alone in that respect. But there's a, there's a moment, and I've thought much about this, being outside of Christ. I've thought about this because I almost died like five or six times as a young man, like really died. I almost brought people with me. I almost killed people, as a matter of fact. And I thought about this often because it wasn't a stretch to think that I was going to die. Now, I had to reconcile myself to the fact, what happens when I do die? And, and that's where the loneliest experience anyone can ever experience is taking place. And it's, it's unavoidable. Outside of accepting Christ, it's unavoidable. And what is that? That is standing all alone in front of a judgment seat where there, you have no representation. You have no advocate. You have no one speaking on your behalf. Anything you say at that moment is not enough. No matter how eloquent you want to make a case, it's not enough. You do not have one who speaks on your behalf. That is, that, is, that is how you are living your life right now, in a tr moving towards a transition. You're moving among people, doing things, staying busy, dealing with things, enjoying this, enjoying that, going through life. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not, maybe it's both, who knows. But the day is coming when you will be as alone as anyone has ever been alone, You'll be more alone than you ever experienced before if you don't have a relationship with Christ. You'll stand there with no defense, no material, no notes, nothing. You got nothing to say. Because you, like everyone else in this world, is a sinner. And unless you've accepted the payment of your sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you have no defense for it. And the greatest regret you'll have is that you didn't pay attention to me on that day or anyone else who tried to tell you this, and you'll just stand there and say, I should have listened and responded. It's sobering. It is so sobering. If you're in need of going into a mountain, ask the person you're nearest 
to help you do that. And trust they're not insecure about it. Trust they know you need it. Trust they know you'll come back better. Make the wholeness of your relationship better by three or four days of separation. We get so caught up in the multitudes, in the busyness and hurriedness of life, the noise and the frenetic nature in which we live our lives. And our greatest regret as, as followers of Christ is we didn't often enough make an occasion to embrace solitude. And guess what? When two people find solitude each at the same time, both find solitude. And when they rejoin, guess what happens? I just need to share what I really felt happened these last few days, and that is, I love you more than I realized. And I need you to forgive me for this. We schedule counseling appointments 50 minutes at a time that hopefully add up to what truly was needed more than that. The Spirit of God speaking to a person when that's all they had to hear and position themselves in such a way to do nothing but receive. Where's the solution to that problem you're trying to solve? Where's that strategic plan for your business or your ministry? What's that approach to that lost person you're trying to, to reach with love and compassion? How is it that you're going to manage to be a caregiver for someone who's gonna need you a long time? It's available to you but it may just be available to you greatest when you are most sensitive to it in the mountain. Not on it, in it. And I wanna encourage you to think about the transition that Jesus is making. He's leaving the frenetic, the anxious, the panic, the multitude of multitudes, turns his face like flint to Jerusalem, to desolation again. He's finishing the same way he started, on our behalf, that you and I won't have to do so. Let's make sure his efforts have paid off in our life, and we're living at a pace whereby we can hear, we can act, we can be encouraged, we can be counseled, we can be corrected. Some of you are going way too fast. And if I haven't heard it once, I've heard it 10 times in the last six weeks. I just don't have the bandwidth. I don't have it. I just don't have the bandwidth. Translation, I'm trying to get by. I don't have what it takes. I'm being ineffective, more than effective. I'm starting to feel embarrassed about it. I don't know what to do. Go into the mountain 
rest of us will be here when you get back. And after returning, would you please encourage one of us to do likewise? Amen? Amen. Ponder these things in your heart, shall we?